Hello, I'm Nathan Seppi. I'm the youth director here at Bethany North, uh, which means that for the most part, I get to hang out with middle school and high school students, grades six to 12, which is seriously a joy and a privilege. Um, I'm pretty new to Bethany North. I've just been here since last August. So if we haven't met yet, I'm happy to meet you today. And I'm glad to be here uh, closing the book of Job together. Before we hear the word in the sermon, let us pray. Dear God, I pray that during this time that you will open our eyes and our ears so that we can hear your voice and be aware of you working in and through this time. No matter where we are, no matter where we may be hearing these words, God, I pray that we'll hear an invitation into deeper relationship with you. Invitation, a relationship with you, a God who is bigger than anything that we can comprehend. And yet, a God who loves us deeply and wants personal relationship with us. Thank you, Lord, for this time, for all of us who are gathered near and far together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so to begin, I want to give you the origin story of my overly intense love of coffee. Uh, to give you a little context of my love of coffee, I have my own grinder, a gooseneck kettle. I have a scale that I weigh the grams of coffee every morning. Um, I have a timer. I um, literally have about three feet of counter space dedicated to me making a cup of coffee in the morning. And where that began was when I was in college um, because I had this opportunity to study abroad in France. I was going to live with a French host family, live in a city named Nantes, and learn about the French culture. But before I went to France, I wasn't a coffee drinker. But I had this impression that French people, that they did drink coffee. I kind of had this image that everyone was going to be like Ernest Hemingway, right? Sitting in a cafe with a little cup of espresso, talking about existentialism. And then here comes Nathan, who's going to be this huge dud because he doesn't drink coffee at all, right? Well, I decided I was going to become a coffee drinker. And so just like how some people would train for marathons, I started drinking coffee. I did, you know, half a cup this day, half a cup that day, full cup on the weekends. And eventually I succeeded. I became a coffee drinker. And so I went to France and then I discovered something. I discovered I was wrong. I was wrong about what I thought coffee was going to be in France. It turns out that no one was like Ernest Hemingway sitting in a cafe talking about Sartre or something like that. And my French host parents, all they did, they made a cup of coffee in the morning and that was it. It wasn't a big deal really at all. And what essentially happened was that I had my idea about what France was like. I had heard what France was going to be like. But then I went there and I saw France and I experienced it. And I realized I needed to change what I had thought France was going to be. I needed to reevaluate my assumptions about it. And in humility, just learn what it was through experience. And something about this journey of moving from unfound assumptions to knowing what it really is like, is there's, there's no amount of textbooks that could have gotten me there. There's no amount of reading I could have done or any you know, prep work. I just had to be there. I needed to experience it. And the sermon today uh, is about the book of Job. It's the end of the book of Job. Um, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at this journey that Job goes through. 
and how this journey that Job goes through, at the beginning, he has assumptions about what God is like. And he has to break down those assumptions, just like I had to break down what I thought France was like. And in humility, he embraces the mystery that is following a God that's bigger than anything we can comprehend. And yet a God who came down to him, who drew near to him, even in the midst of his suffering. And to unpack this journey that Job goes through, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at where Job began, where Job ended, and what changed for Job. So first, where did Job begin? Well, when we meet Job at the beginning of the book, we meet a man who was described as an exemplary person. He, uh, it says in verse two that he was blameless, upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. So a, a, a man who is good on many different levels. But we also see that there's a couple things about Job, two things in particular that are gonna change by the end of the book. One of those things is that Job's understanding of righteousness, his definition of righteousness is simply um, conforming himself to others' expectations and not conforming himself to God's heart. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that when we hear why Job is so righteous and successful, we get this big list that he has many animals, many servants, large extravagant feasts, a large family, we basically see that he is checking all of the boxes of what would have been expected of him during his time. Another way to put this is, um, is sometimes when you ask a young child, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? The child will tell you, you know, oh, I want to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, and I want to have a sports car, and I want to have a mansion. And they just check these boxes of what they've been told means being successful. That's the same thing that Job is doing with his life. He's simply checking the boxes, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. So that's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is about his relationship with God. Because at the beginning of the book of Job, Job or Job's relationship with God is transactional. In verse six, we learn that Job has a regular custom. He rises in the morning to offer a burnt sacrifice for each of his children. Uh, and he thinks, quote, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And what's interesting about this, this little snippet of Job's life that we get here, is that he is offering preemptive sacrifices. So not a sacrifice to repent for something that happened in the past, but a sacrifice to uh, repent for something that might happen in the future, he doesn't even know if it's going to happen. And this is actually the only place in the whole Old Testament and the culture of sacrifice that we see someone who sacrifices preemptively. And what it shows us is that there's this religious anxiety hanging over Job. He's not sure if he's right with God. And so he wants to hedge his bets. So he's going to offer up these sacrifices, whether they're needed or not, and so that he can make sure that God's going to give him and his family good things in return. Essentially, his relationship with God is treating God like a cosmic cashier. He's going to give God what God wants, and he expects God to give him what he wants in return. And so in this way, the Job that we meet at the beginning of the book is actually a lot like Job's friends who we meet later in the book. Job's friends who sit with him in his suffering and, and try to 
rather unsuccessfully explain away his suffering for him. Because Job's friends actually give Job the same transactional picture of God that Job had at the beginning of the book. Zophar, one of the friends in chapter 11, for instance, says that um, Job, you know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So what you need to do is repent of some secret bad thing that you've done. That's obviously the problem here, Job. So repent of that and God will give you good things in return. But the thing is, is that when Job hears this from his friends, it falls flat on him. Now in the midst of his, his experience, he is starting to wrestle with this preconceived notion that he had of God and is starting to push back against it. And it falls flat on Job and it also falls flat on us. Some scholars have gone so far to say that Job's conversation with his friends could be categorized as satire because there are some of their responses seem so outlandish to the face of Job's severe felt suffering. And so they seem to, of course, not be talking about what God is like. And yet, I don't think that we should discount these ideas and, and push them away and distance ourselves from so fast because there's actually this idea of the transactional God is still around us today. One iteration of this is um, the idea of the prosperity gospel. That's a, a theology, a belief that basically says that the more you believe, the more you have faith, the more health and wealth that you will attain. This is that same transactional logic that makes God the cosmic cashier. I give God faith, God gives me health and wealth. But at the end of the day, what it does is it makes health and wealth the end goal. It makes God the middleman who we're just using to get what we want. And a question I have for all of us is, are there ways that we are just using God as that middleman in our lives right now? Are we just using God as some means to an end, another end that's out there and not treating God as the end in itself, in himself? This idea of uh, the prosperity gospel, David W. Jones, he's a seminary professor and he's an author as well. He summed up the flaw with this kind of thinking by saying that it's a faulty view of the relationship between God and humanity. Simply put, if the prosperity gospel is true, grace is obsolete, God is irrelevant, and humanity is the measure of all things. It turns the relationship between God and humans into a quid pro quo transaction. And so this is where we meet Job at the beginning of the book with um, a righteousness that is simply defined by others' expectations of him and with this transactional picture of God. When we meet Job at the end of the book though, we see that Job has changed unsurprisingly over the 42 chapters of this long book. And there's a lot of different changes that have happened that we can look at. Perhaps the first and most notable change, which uh, was in our scripture reading, was that Job has twice as much stuff, right? And while sometimes this is called the twofold restoration of Job, and while in some ways this might point to God's ultimate saving work, that yes, God has the final word over sin and death. This is what Christ has achieved through the cross and the resurrection. It, it points to this picture of restoration with God. We would be missing the bigger picture, though, 
at the end of Job, if we really think that all 35 chapters of Job wrestling honestly with God, of sitting in this tension of, of trying to break down his preconceived notions and yet not giving up on God at the same time, all 35 chapters of this process was simply so that Job could get more stuff at the end. And why that's the case is because loss is loss. You see, in college, my grandmother passed away. And so me and my parents, we drove down to uh, Southern Idaho uh, to help kind of clean out some stuff. And when we were in my grandmother's house, um, I was very aware that this was gonna be the last time I was ever there. This setting that had so many warm memories and loving memories of, of me and my grandmother. And so on the way out, I kind of in, impulsively grabbed a mug. It was not a fancy mug. It was just a simple mug. And yet it was going to be a, a, a way for me to remember my grandmother. And it quickly became one of my favorite mugs. I would often um, opt to hand wash that mug so I could use it the next day for my coffee. Because of course, I'm still drinking coffee at this point. So I would hand wash it instead of grab a new mug. But at the time, I was living with five other guys in a house. And as can happen in a, in a scenario where there is so much chaotic energy all confined into one place, um, accidents were bound to happen. And so one day, the uh, mug was on the drying rack, and it was knocked off by one of my housemates. Total accident. And it broke on the ground. Now, I could have gone online. I could have found that exact same mug, right? And I could have bought a new one. I could have bought two of those exact same mugs. But the thing is, is that that mug was lost. And loss is loss, simply put. Those mugs would not have been the same mug. And if this is true of a mug, a thing, how much more true is this when we think of people in our lives, people who are uniquely made in God's image? They're one of a kind, Jerry Sitzer, who's an author and professor who lost much of his family in a car accident, he speaks about loss and grief and how it feels like a part of you is just missing. Like there's a void that you just can't fill up with something similar or of the same kind. And so because we know that loss is loss, we know that we're missing the bigger picture of the end of Job if we simply think that the point is that he has twice as much stuff. Instead, what we see with Job is that he is living in a new way. He's living in a new way after he has encountered God. You see the last words that Job speaks in uh, Job chapter 42, verses five and six. He says, God, I had heard who you were, but now I have seen you. And then he says uh, in 42.6, which Scott preached on in the first week of the book um, and how sometimes it's translated, I repent, but um, that word ma'ar is actually more of a casting off, a throwing out. So, uh, so he says, I've heard of you, but now I have seen you. And I cast out or throw off this old way of living. And what is the old ways that he's casting off? Well, first we see that Job is no longer constricted by other people's uh, opinions of him. That's not how he's defining his own righteousness. In verse 14, we learn that Job has seven sons and three daughters. This is the same size of the family at the beginning of the book. But at the end of the book, the daughters of Job are the ones who are named. 
And not only that, but Job actually leaves his inheritance to his daughters and to his sons. This would have been completely countercultural at his time to leave his inheritance to his daughters. And what it shows us is that Job has gone through this gospel shift in his life through encountering God, that he is aware of, you know, instead of having this logic of people being pushed out and people being on the inside, that he is bringing the people who were on the margins on the inside. There's enough room for them all, and he's including them into his story. So we see that Job's righteousness is now moving closer to God's heart, not simply uh, keeping up with the Joneses anymore. We also see that his relationship with God has changed by the end of the book. Uh, where he had a transactional understanding of God at the beginning, we now know that there's no more preemptive sacrifices. He's not offering these sacrifices out of religious anxiety anymore, but we actually see this kind of newfound freedom in his life. Freedom, which Paul exemplif- or which Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, the freedom of life in Christ. Uh, Paul wrote that Christ came so that we could be free from things like the law. And so instead of having a rule-based and one-dimensional relationship with God, instead, we can have this living, holistic relationship with God. Not a God who's a cosmic cashier, but a God who is more like a family member, who calls us sons and daughters, children. This is what Paul calls life in the Spirit. And it's this freedom that's akin to the freedom that we see with Job at the end of the book. No more religious anxiety or preemptive sacrifices. And what I want to talk about now is what changed for Job. When in Job's journey did this all begin to shift? And what changed is that Job encountered God. Job encountered God and found God to be beyond the box that he had made for God at the beginning of the book. He found a God who was wild, who was awesome in the true sense of the word, awe-inspiring, and in many ways was beyond comprehension. And he also found a God who drew near to him, had a conversation with him. This is something that's actually really rare in the Old Testament to have an active conversation. But a God who had a conversation with him and drew near to him even in his suffering. A God that listened to his case. And even though God does not come down, and we've, we've talked about this in other sermons, God doesn't try to explain it all away. And God doesn't come with a whiteboard trying to solve the problem of evil for Job. But what, jo- what God says to Job, this is Nathan's um, uh, kind of summary of the divine speech, uh, paraphrase, you could say. God says, who are you and who am I? That's what God says to Job. And this is the same God who comes to us in the person of Christ. This is the same God who came to earth in the manger as a baby, who had a ministry full of healing, teaching, inviting people into this living relationship with himself. Christ, who through his death and resurrection tore open the curtain, who did this new thing of personal unmediated relationship with God. This Christ invites us into the same transformative personal encounter that Job had um, with himself. He does it simply through the invitation to follow him. And if we're courageous enough to say yes to this radical invitation, to follow a God who is bigger than any box we could ever construct, 
and yet loves us deeply, then we will find the same thing happen to us that happened to Job. This gospel shift in our life, that we will end the story at a different place than where we began. And it might happen in big, monumental, all at once ways, or maybe it's gonna happen in the small, everyday ways. But when we commit to this relationship with God, we know that we will not be at the same person at the end than where we began. And a word that I have for everyone who is listening to this is that there is more for us in our relationship with God. There are boxes that God wants to break down in each one of us. There are assumptions that God wants to push us past. No matter where we are, there is a new way to encounter God. Um, The same God who when asked for a name simply said, I am who I am. Basically saying, come and see who I am. You will know me by being in relationship with me. This idea that each of us have a new way to encounter God, that's something that my wife Lauren and I were really convicted of this last year. This last year, both of us were finishing up our seminary degrees uh, over on the East Coast at Princeton. And we had just finished these three years devoted to learning about and talking about God, the Bible, the church, and everything in between. And even after we signed off on these degrees, we knew that there was much more for us. And so we decided that we were going to hike a section of the Pacific Crest Trail. We're going to hike most of Oregon and Washington, about 800 miles of the trail. And the heart behind us hiking this trail wasn't so that we could get a bunch of cool Instagram photos. It was instead so that we could encounter God. We wanted to tap into this long tradition of pilgrimage in the Christian church, which is taking a journey specifically to encounter God in a new way. We wanted to uh, have that encounter with God and be transformed just as Job is transformed uh, in his life. And it was clear from the get-go that our expectations of what the Pacific Crest Trail was going to be, our assumptions of what it was like, it was different than what it was really like. Just like uh, when I went to France, it was different. And yet, even in the unexpected, God uh, came and met us. I personally kept feeling this call back to a, a simple gospel, the simple gospel. After three years of studying with Princeton faculty, with one of the largest theological libraries in the world, where I had all these ideas and floating around, I felt God calling me back to the simple gospel, to follow him. Christ's invitation, follow him. And that's what I heard in that season, in that journey. And I hope that each of us as we listen to this, that each of us, as we enter the season of Lent, the season where we journey with Christ to the cross, that we will find a way to go on our own kind of pilgrimage. Perhaps that pilgrimage is, uh, is reading the Gospel of Mark. This is something that we're doing together um, as a church, is reading through the Gospel of Mark. Perhaps it is um, a form of fasting, giving up something um, so that you can try to encounter God in a new way. Um, because that's what the heart of um, when people give up something for Lent, it's, the heart of it is to encounter God. Not, it's not a second chance at a New Year's resolution. And I hope that each of us will find a way to take a pilgrimage through the season of Lent and encounter Christ as we journey for the cross. And in that way, I hope that we will be able to go through the same journey that Job has gone through. The same journey of wherever we are right now, encountering God, 
and finding ourselves in a different place.